0: Coming then to the last uh, of our studies in Genesis 2 and 3, one of our children is looking forward to what the next series is going to be, uh, but have to listen to this last sermon uh, on Genesis 2 and 3 uh, this evening. And it's about the grace of God. And this sermon comes at a good time for me. And I'll tell tell you why. Last Sabbath here, I I heard about a member whose bike was broken and it was going to be very expensive to fix. You you maybe heard about it as well. And that went in my head and it went out of my head. And visiting during the week, I I came across this, this person and this person told me that someone else in church heard the very same thing and immediately said to him oh I'll take you down to the bike shop I'm off later on in the week I'll take your bike down and we'll get it fixed and, and the person did that and I, I, I sat there thinking why did that member respond in that way and I didn't respond in that way offering to take his bike down the shop And I've thought about it since. And maybe you heard about it as well. And you're feeling bad down there because you didn't respond in that way as well. And my theory is that the member that helped out has been dwelling more on the grace of God than I have. And they responded in grace because they have been drinking in The amazing grace of God to them. They've been feeling, sensing, dwelling on God's grace to them. And so, in that moment of need, they instinctively acted with grace. Now, that was the very conclusion of my sermon tonight, but I put it in at the start because this sermon should have a practical bearing on our life, that we should leave church tonight reflecting on the grace of God and determined to respond and mirror that grace to one another. So we're coming to the last of our studies and foundations for living in the twenty-first century, considering this subject of divine grace We won't be able to to live well as we've thought already this evening in our church in this 21st century or in our community without understanding and enjoying and appreciating divine grace. We can be Sabbath keepers. We can know our identity in the image of God. We can understand the proper place of work and the the purpose of creation and redemption. We can recognize and appreciate the covenant of life in chapter 2. We can be familiar with our sinfulness and the workings of suffering. But perhaps the chief element of our lives as human beings is to know, to appropriate, to dwell on To live the grace of God. And isn't this an incredible thing? It's a a rebuking thing. It's it's a dimension and an insight into God that, that perhaps we miss. That here in the presence of judgment and wrath and the divine court sentence, God shows his grace. Grace is defined by Joel Beakey in his excellent Reformed systematic theology as exercising unmerited favor and kindness to someone such as the poor. He goes on to distinguish it from mercy. Mercy emphasizes kindness shown to someone in misery. Grace stresses free generosity, he says, to someone to whom the giver owes nothing. Grace illustrated in the Bible for us, in David's kindness to Mephibosheth, taking the lame man to the king's table, receiving nothing in return. Grace shown here to Adam and Eve. Uh, and, And we see it in five ways. Firstly, grace In our conflict, in verse 15, we see God's grace in this, and isn't this incredible? I will put enmity between you and the woman. That is a statement of grace. And it's a statement of grace because the conflict that we've thought already today is not one sided. The attack is not just from Satan. We will not be passive in this conflict. We will not be the plaything of Satan, a weak object of his attacks, his cunning, and his ridicule. God sets the devil against humanity, but also humanity against the devil. In the Garden of Eden, they were friends. Eve was listening to, the, to Satan, she was his conversation partner. She was agreeing with Satan in the garden. But now God breaks that partnership. He instills this enmity between the woman and her seed and descendants and Satan. Not only will Satan attack us, but we will repulse and pray against the activity of Satan. The word bruise is used of both parties in this verse. They will bruise each other. One will bruise the head, the other will bruise the heel. The woman's descendants are mentioned here and not the man's, as she's the bearer of the children. Satan will attack humanity, but humanity will also resist and attack Satan. The enmity is set between the woman and satan scripture indicates that it will not be all of humanity that will be against satan as we read in ephesians chapter 2 the unbeliever is blinded by satan walking according to the influences and power of the prince of the air but the christian the believer is in a spiritual conflict against satan God, in his grace, steps in and breaks this partnership that was there in Eden and places in the regenerate soul an awareness and a repulsion of the schemes of Satan. Jesus, in the wilderness, sends Satan away. Jesus hears the suggestion of Peter to avoid the cross and tells Satan to get behind him. There is in Christ and his people this enmity against Satan. This is the grace of God stepping in there into our hearts and the hearts of the regenerate to be at enmity with the devil, not to be like Eve, listening to his voice, doubting God's word, disobeying his commands. No boxer. Male or female, Nicola Adams or Anthony Joysha is passive in the boxing ring. Both boxers enter the ring with the intention of defeating one another. They know they will be attacked and that one of them will overcome the other, but they will also attack. One of the marks of a Christian is that we resist the schemes of Satan In the apostolic writings there are commands that we are to oppose his kingdom and his work. Give new opportunity to the devil. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, resist the devil. James says in chapter 4, 1 Peter 5 warns us to be careful of our adversary the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion. It's the mark of God's people that there is this gracious, inbuilt enmity against the schemes of Satan. We know we have an enemy. We look out for his snares. We seek the strength of heaven to resist them. We pray daily, deliver me, deliver us from the evil one. Behind our temptations to commit wrong and pull back from doing good, we recognize that there is a spiritual battle Missing our devotions. Being silent when we should witness. There's to be an enmity against Satan. When taking a series of meetings in, in one of the sermons, I said as I, I said to yourself that, that the devil does not want you to pray out loud at the prayer meeting. And I talked about a minister who, who had that, that problem and determined that he would pray at every opportunity at a public prayer meeting. He said he's prayed some terrible prayers, but he's always prayed because he recognized it was a spiritual battle. And the next, prayer, the next night of the prayer meeting, this man in the church prayed. Never heard him pray before. And I happened to be stand beside him at the tea and he says. You've really grown spiritually. I've known him for years. Never heard him pray in public. And I said, you've you've really grown. It was great to hear you praying. And he said, it was that line in the sermon that it dawned on me that I'm in a spiritual battle and I am going to win that battle. Here's the grace of God. He places an enmity between the woman and her godly descendants and and Satan. Secondly, grace in our children in verse 16. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Even though childbearing involves pain, children will still be born. The human race will survive. The church on earth will continue. You shall bring forth children. What a promise of grace Jesus mentions the greater joy, doesn't he, of a, a child born and the pain of labor and childbirth in John sixteen twenty-one, He says, a woman in labor is in pain because her time has come, he says. But when the child is born, she forgets the anguish in her joy that a man has been born into the world. The grace of God in our children. You Shall bring forth children. The New Testament comments on this very promise in First Timothy and chapter two, where the Apostle writes that women shall be saved in childbearing. And it's a phrase that has been picked over and a range of suggestions given for it. But it emphasizes on a a church level that that the role of woman is crucial and important. They're saved from being obsolete, useless, redundant in the church. Paul advocates that the the, the male is to do the teaching and the leading, but but the women are saved from being obsolete and useless because they're allowing the human race to survive. The elect of God are being brought into this world through them. And supremely, the Lord Jesus Christ was born of a woman. Here is God's grace in our children. That though birth and parenting involves pain, yet there is immense joy in seeing our covenant children come to faith, joining the church, going on to serve Jesus Christ. John Calvin comments, Although the consolation offered be in itself obscure and feeble, God caused it to be sufficient for the support of their hope, lest the weight of their affliction should entirely overwhelm them. This is the grace of God. You shall bring forth children. One of the amazing points made in chapter 3 is that Adam is an example to us. Have you ever wondered about the connection between verse 19 and 20? Here is this incredible announcement and statement by God setting out the judgment. And verse 20 seems disjointing the whole, the whole situation. But, but, but it says there, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living ESV has a footnote which reads, Eve sounds like the Hebrew for life giver and resembles the word for living. So there's Adam. Out of all the things that God says, all those dark and painful pronouncements which God makes, he responds in faith. He latches on to the grace of God and he says, There, my wife. She's going to be the mother of all living. All the godly will will come through her and, and, and other women following her and ultimately the Savior will come from them who will redeem us and cover over our transgressions. In a moment of judgment, he exercises faith. And you and I are to respond to this grace of God with faith. Grace in the presence of holiness. Grace in the presence of wrath. Grace in the presence of judgment. Adam believes this. Eve will be the mother of all the living. And we sometimes struggle here. We see our sinfulness. We see the holiness of God. We doubt God's grace. We wonder if Jesus is enough we fear, have we sinned too much? Are we really a Christian? Will God's word be kept? Are his promises true? And Adam here is an example for us. He latches on to the grace of God, promised. And descendants to follow on supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace in our conflict, grace in our children. Thirdly, grace in our creation, in verses 17 to 19, in pain you shall eat of it, that the ground all the days of your life, thorns and thistles the ground shall bring forth for you, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Here again, there is judgment judgment of pain and thorns and sweat. But in that judgment, there is a threefold promise of provision. Eating, you shall eat of the fruit of the ground. Yes, there'll be thorns and thistles in the ground. Yes, you will sweat in harvesting it, but you shall eat of the fruit of the ground. It won't be total desert. It won't be totally infertile. There will be harvest. There will be food that comes from it. The ground producing fruit for mankind. And thirdly, you shall eat bread, mingled in with the judgment of God, mingled in with the hard labor that Adam and we experience, the harsh conditions which will fight against us. There is this promise of grace and preservation, food on our table, fruit from the ground. We've read of the wonderful provisions of God in the life perhaps of George Mueller. The, the, the person who ran the orphanages in Bristol. Of that cart loaded with bread breaking out breaking down outside of the orphanages. A wonderful and gracious provision. Hungry mouths. No money in the bank. God wonderfully providing for the orphans in Bristol. Or of the Covenanter hiding up in the hayloft for, for days and, and weeks on end and a little hen coming each day and laying an egg within reach of that hiding covenanter. Wonderful provision by God. But the provision of food on our table is also a wonderful and gracious provision of God. There in the presence of judgment and sin and condemnation, God says in his grace, you shall eat bread it's important then for us to give thanks at our mealtime. To thank God for our food. Jesus set that example. It's commanded by the New Testament epistles. But more than that, it's a fulfillment of this gracious promise in Genesis. Fourthly, grace in our clothing. What amazing detail verse 21 is. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. There's incredible love here, isn't there? Incredible grace on a whole range of levels, isn't there? Think of the natural level. How unseemly they must have looked. How unkempt they were. In a rush they had sewed fig leaves together. They had made loincloths from animal skins. How rustic the whole appearance would have been. It was no sable rose suit they were wearing. No outfit by Coco Chanel. They looked disheveled. God provided for them an expertly tailored fur coat for each of them. Never has a man or a woman been fitted more perfectly than that day in Eden. But he showed love for them on a moral level. They were naked. They were embarrassed. He covered them. Like the sons of Noah would do for him in chapter 9. But on a spiritual level, he showed grace. By this action, God is showing them and us the way of salvation. A life was taken blood was shed, an animal was slain, that they might be covered. God is showing to them and teaching us that by the life of one, he provides that covering, that clothing, that salvation for us. Mary Humphreys, who has recently passed away dressed in outrageous perhaps offensive clothing. He did it to make money. He did it to attract attention to himself. But here is God with love and grace and care, clothing, Adam and Eve, in his mercy. This should teach us that our religion can stoop to giving a man a coat, to providing a covering, for someone else, to meet the temporal needs of a person, to throw a few coins into the cap of a beggar, a few tins into the food bank. Here is God clothing Adam and Eve in Eden. But that's not all that we're to do we to go beyond this and communicate to them the gospel that that atoning sacrifice of Jesus is the supreme riches, the great covering which they and we and them need by his life and death and resurrection and through repentance of our sins and believing in him we receive that covering that we can stand in the presence of God by the given life of Jesus we receive life and salvation. Grace in our covering. Lastly, grace in our conqueror in verse 15. Grace in this Garden of Eden, grace in this context is revealed supremely in the promise of a conqueror of Satan. And how incredible this promise is. Step into Adam and Eve's shoes for a moment. Satan has just tricked them. He's just tripped them up. He's made them look foolish. They're angry. With themselves, with him They're disappointed, they're repentant They're kicking themselves for their foolishness They're devastated at the mammoth loss That they brought on themselves They're about to be expunged from the garden of Eden Out into a desert and a wilderness And sweat the rest of their days Seeking to provide food on their table But in that moment of devastation for them And brokenness And absolute despair God promises them a savior, a conqueror of their enemy who had seemed to conquer them. To Satan, God says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A savior for humanity is promised. The first gospel promise is given here. The gospel will unpack this promise. In the rest of the Bible. And there's three dimensions. Of this coming conqueror. Emphasized in this mother promise. Of the gospel. The first is that he'll. Be male. See the pronouns he. His. So that when Jael hammered in the tent peg. Into the, the forehead of the general of Canaan. Bruising his head. She was a type of what Jesus would do to Satan, but not the fulfillment of this promise. The hero would be male. The hero will be human, of the woman, of her offspring. He would not be an angel. He will not be divine only. He will be truly human. And so when the angels struck 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers in Hezekiah's day, The people knew that this promise was not yet fulfilled because the hero would be human. And the pronouns used here, thirdly, are singular. He, his. Such will be the magnitude of the work that he will do that he'll have to do it alone. Such will be the strength of this person that he can do it on his own. That's the victory of Gideon over the the Moabites with, with 300 men, wonderful though it was, was not the fulfillment of this promise. A single, human, male person is promised who will crush the head of Satan, the enemy of mankind. Perhaps the people thought that When the 16-year-old shepherd boy, David, went down into the valley of Elah, the promised one had come. There was a male. He was on his own. He was human, and he crushed the head of Goliath. But he was only fallible and frail and a shadow of the one to come. And the New Testament writers see the fulfillment of this in Jesus. First John chapter 4, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, that through death he destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Revelation sees Jesus throwing out of the universe the devil, and all his angels. In the cross, Jesus overcame the powers of darkness and paid the ransom price for all those who were in the clutches of Satan. He crushed his head. He brought down his kingdom. Grace in our conqueror. The Argeladies' victory over Belfast, Queens yesterday was a hard won victory. It was pouring rain. Spectators got soaked. Both teams were were very strong. Any mistake was pounced on it. It went down to the last quarter before any goal was scored. One goal divided the teams in the end. It was a hard fought victory by equal contestants. But this is not what's promised here. Satan will bruise. He will bruise the heel of the hero. Driving on Judas and Pilate and Herod and the Sanhedrin, he will bruise Jesus' heel. Jesus will be rejected, arrested, crucified, humiliated. But the hero will bruise Satan's head. He will bring down the decisive blow on Satan and his kingdom. The one who tricked Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus will come and will destroy him. Here is the grace of God in our conqueror. And Ephesians 2 taps into this that we are saved, that we are delivered from the prince of the power of the darkness that, that it talks about in Ephesians 2. We are rescued into fellowship and forgiveness by God, by his grace, by this one and only by this one, in God and his sovereignty and absolute love, promised and sent for our salvation. The local radio station has their cash call on a Friday offering large sums of money, 50, 60, 100,000 pounds. You just need to answer your your phone and uh, announce how much money has been offered that week and it goes straight into your bank account. And why are they doing this? People need money. People want money. People believe that they have the chance of this money. We need a Savior. But do you want a Savior? Do you feel your need, your unworthiness, your guilt as Adam and Eve did that day before God? Because He is freely offered to us in the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. The grace of God. Those of us who have received it. Let us show it. Jesus' mantra for his disciples. As he called them and empowered them. And sent them out was this. Freely you have received. Freely give.